If you have your Bible uh, with you, it would be helpful uh, to have it open at the book of Zechariah and chapter 14. And I'm going to confess at the beginning of this message, I didn't really uh, want to do this chapter uh, because I must admit, I don't fully understand what it means. Uh, it's one of the most difficult chapters in the book, and uh, in many ways, one of the more difficult chapters in the whole Bible. Uh, I asked you to listen, as I was reading this chapter earlier, to a phrase which is repeated again and again. And that phrase is, in that day. Uh, Again and again, Zechariah tells us what is going to happen in that day. Uh, That day which is called in verse 1, the day of the Lord. Uh, The big difficulty with this passage is trying to understand what day is that day. What day is Zechariah, and more importantly, God, referring to? Uh, What day is this passage describing? Now, you might say, well, surely it's obvious. Uh, Those here who are familiar with your Bibles and uh, perhaps have uh, studied for many years uh, you might say, well, it's, it's obvious. Surely this is speaking of the day of judgment, the day when Christ returns. Uh, and that would seem to be the most natural uh, understanding of this passage. But there's a problem which comes in verse 16. Uh, I'll read from verse 13 just to give a little bit more of the context. Uh, Listen to these words from verse 13 of Zechariah chapter 14. Uh, It says, It shall come to pass in that day that a great panic from the Lord will be among them. Everyone will seize the hand of his neighbor and raise his hand against his neighbor's hand. Judah also will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be gathered together, gold, silver, and apparel in great abundance. Such also shall be the plague on the horse and the mule, on the camel and the donkey, and all the cattle that will be in those camps, so shall this plague be. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to worship, to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts on them there will be no rain. If the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, do you see uh, the problem? Do you see how that little section doesn't really seem to fit very well. Uh, If this passage is talking about the second coming, uh, the day when God finally brings 
justice to this world, then who are these nations who are refusing to come up to worship the Lord in Jerusalem? Uh, It says in verse 18 that if these people do not come up to worship at Jerusalem, then God will send his plague upon them. And you think, well, surely those sort of things will be over by that point. Jesus has come back. Uh, The lion is eating with the lamb. Uh, All sin has been punished and dealt with. But here it seems to be talking about punishment and sin even after the second coming. That's why this passage is so difficult. And there's only really two options for us. Uh, One option is to adjust our understanding of what the second coming will be like. Uh, To perhaps understand the second coming as being a little bit longer than we perhaps imagine it to be. Not just an immediate day of judgment and then peace afterwards. But perhaps it will be a longer period of Christ bringing his rule on this earth. The other alternative is to understand this passage more symbolically. uh, To understand it as speaking in heightened language in symbolic language to explain spiritual truths or to perhaps uh, put it more simply uh, this passage could be speaking of Christ's second coming or it might be speaking more symbolically of Christ's first coming and I'll be honest I'm not entirely certain which it is. Uh, I lean towards it being primarily about Christ's second coming and that perhaps we do need to delve a little deeper into the scripture about what the second coming will be like. Uh, But I don't have hard and fast answers there. But what I would like to do uh, for the rest of our time this evening is to look at what this passage says that day will be like. Uh, And seven times in Zechariah chapter 14, it says, in that day. So we're going to look at each of those seven times to understand what that day will be like. And I will point to how it could be symbolic of Christ's first coming, but I'll also explain how it could be speaking of some things which are yet to happen. And if nothing else, we'll at least uh, be more familiar with this passage as we think about these things uh, more and more. So let's look at these seven uh, times this passage says in that day to see what we can learn about the day of the Lord. And the first time it's mentioned is in verse 3. Uh, Sorry, in verse 4, but I'll read from verse 3. Listen to God's word. It says, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. 
And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azal. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Isaiah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. These verse, verses, in summary, teach that God will come in person and rescue his people. Uh, it refers to his feet standing on the Mount of Olives. And as I'm sure uh, many of you, if not all of you, are aware, uh, the Mount of Olives still stands to this day to the east of the city of Jerusalem. Uh, and the Mount of Olives presented, and to some extent still, pre still presents, uh, a formidable, ob formidable obstacle to anyone who wants to escape from the city. Uh, you need to imagine yourself in, a, in the city of Jerusalem, surrounded by enemies. And even if you manage to break through uh, the lines of the army surrounding the city, you still have to scale the Mount of Olives without being spotted, uh, without being spotted by the enemy. And so this Mount of Olives presented an obstacle to people trying to escape from the city, the city surrounded by enemies. But God says here that although Jerusalem is surrounded by enemies, he will make a way of escape. He himself will step onto the Mount of Olives and it will split in two, thus making an avenue for escape. It will make a way of refuge. Now, of course, uh, we know that Jesus, in his first coming, did indeed come and stand on the Mount of Olives. Uh, on the night of his crucifixion, we're told how he and his disciples went to the Mount of Olives and he earnestly prayed to his father that that cup would pass from him. But his father told him he had to endure the agony of the cross. But we know by dying on the cross, Jesus truly did make a way of escape for all his people. Spiritually, he made a way of escape so that we could be freed from our enemies, yes, but most importantly, from our sin. So we see Christ's feet did stand on the Mount of Olives and he did make a way of escape. So you see, we can take this in a symbolic, spiritual way. But do you remember what the angels said to the disciples as they saw or after they'd seen Jesus ascend into heaven from the Mount of Olives? Uh, they said to him, said to them, as you have seen him ascend, so you will see him return. Presumably, as you saw him ascend from the Mount of Olives, so you will see him descend. 
So it may be that when Christ returns, he will indeed set foot onto the Mount of Olives. And what he has done spiritually for all his people in redeeming us from our sin and rescuing us from all our enemies, including the enemy of death itself, so he will do for his people on that day when Jerusalem is surrounded by enemies. Uh, Will the Mount of Olives actually split in two? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. Uh, The passage seems to say that, and there's no reason why that could not be the case as far as I can tell. But either way, the truth remains, and of this we can be sure of, God will come in person, and he will rescue his people. Uh, That's why, as David shared at the beginning, we do not need to be afraid. God will make a way of escape. Uh, No matter what trials and tribulations come on this world, we do not need to be afraid. Just like God made a way of escape for Lot and his daughters from the city of Sodom, so we will escape whatever wrath comes upon this world through Christ. So that's the first thing we learn. God will come in person and rescue his people. But the passage goes on, tells us more. Uh, Look again at verse 6. It says in verse 6, It shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light. The lights will diminish. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But at evening time it shall happen that it will be light. Uh, Zechariah tells us that the lights will diminish, presumably speaking of the sun, the moon, the stars. Uh, They will no longer give their light. Uh, Throughout history, and even to this day, the sun, the moon, and the stars have been worshipped. And we can understand why. Uh, Because they're so... uh, in some ways beyond our comprehension. Uh, They're so apparently sure and fixed. The sun rises every morning and it sets every morning. Um, Many have therefore viewed the sun, for example, as godlike. But Zechariah says these great lights will be dimmed before the coming of their maker. Again, it's hard not to think, is it? of that day of Christ's crucifixion when the sun was darkened at noonday and for three hours the sun did not give its light as Christ bore the sin of the world. Uh, But this description of the sun, the moon and the stars no longer giving their light is often used in the Bible to describe the end of the world. Jesus himself described the end of the world in that way, that the sun, the moon, the stars would cease to give their light. So again, we see both things have their application to Christ's first coming, but also his second at well. But either way, the truth remains. These things which seems so fixed to us, which seems so sure, which seems so certain, 
are not so certain as we think. The sun, the moon, and the stars are servants of God as well. And when he sees fit, he will switch the lights off. He can switch the lights off. Do not rely on those things. Rely on the maker of those things. So that's the second thing we learn about that day. The sun, the moon, and the stars will be darkened. Uh, But look again, there's a third thing. Uh, Verse 8 And trustfully, we'll go quicker through these, just in case you're worrying about time. But it's verse 8. It says, And in that day it shall be that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be. Uh, Verse 8 tells us that in that day living waters shall flow from Jerusalem. Uh, We're told that half of them will go to the east and half of them will go to the west. In other words, these living waters will be for everyone, the east and the west. We're told that these waters will go out in both summer and winter. In other words, they'll be for all people, For all time. This is an eternal stream of water. Uh, In other words, Jerusalem will become a place of blessing for all people for all time. Now hopefully you can see how this relates to Christ's first coming. Uh, Hopefully you can hear, as it were, Jesus' own words when he stood Uh, on the great day of the Feast of Tabernacles. And he said, Come to me, all you who thirst, and out of your bellies will flow fountains of living water. Uh, Jesus was saying, I am the fountain. I am the one who you need to come to to drink from. I am the one who will bring blessing, eternal blessing, to all nations of the world. And of course he said that as he stood on earth at his first coming. And that's true for all of us. Uh, We can come to Christ. We are welcomed to Christ to feast on him, to drink from him, to find our satisfaction and our meaning and our purpose in him. And in that way, he is the blessing to all nations of the world. But what we enjoy now spiritually, one day we'll enjoy physically as well. Today we can't see Christ, can we? Uh, We live by faith. Uh, We walk by faith. We cannot see him. But one day we will. Uh, One day Christ will come to this world, and as the New Testament puts it, we will see him face to face. And the blessings we enjoy now spiritually by faith, we'll enjoy physically by sight then. So again, we see this verse can be taken in a more symbolic spiritual way, but it will be fulfilled in a more physical way. living way 
later when we see him face to face. That's three things, just four more things to go. The fourth thing this passage says, or the fourth description of that day, is found in verse 9. It says, And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be, the Lord is one and his name one. All the land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be raised up and inhabited in her place from Benjamin's gate to the place of the first gate and the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. The people shall dwell in it and no longer shall there be utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be inhabited. And you wonder, well, what's, that, what's all that description about? But what these verses are saying is on that day, Christ, or God, through Christ, will be king over the whole earth, on the earth. Now, right now, Christ is reigning over the earth. Christ is the king. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. Jesus is king now. But one day, he will be king on this earth. Uh, we pray, don't we, or we should pray if we follow the Lord's Prayer. Uh, your, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's will is done perfectly in heaven. It's not done perfectly on earth, is it? Uh, we have people who rebel against God, who fight against God, who resist God. So although God is king, his will is not done as it should be, as it is in heaven. But one day, he will rule on this earth, on this earth that we are walking on now. Christ will be king. Uh, we're told in the book of Philippians that Every eye will see him, and to him every knee shall bow. Uh, if these people are alive when he comes back, Joe Biden will bow the knee to Christ. Donald Trump will bow the knee to Christ. Rishi Sunak will bow the knee to Christ. King Jong-il will bow the knee to Christ. Uh, whichever ruler... Whichever emperor, whichever king you want to choose, Vladimir Putin will bow the knee to Christ. And that is really going to happen on this earth, in reality, because God will be king over the whole earth on this earth. That's the second thing we're told about that day. Let's move on. The fifth reality of that day verse 13 it says it shall come to pass in that day that a great panic from the lord will be among them everyone will seize the hand of his neighbor and raise his hand against his neighbor's hand judah also will fight at jerusalem and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be gathered together gold silver and apparel in great abundance such also shall be the plague on the horse and the mule, on the camel and the donkey, and on all the cattle that shall be in those camps. So shall this plague be. 
Now, I have to say, this is one of the reasons why I lean towards this passage being primarily about the second coming of Christ. Because it's not hard, is it, to imagine why the nations attacking God's people will be panicked at his coming. Uh, It's not hard to imagine those enemies surrounding God's people being stricken with fear as they see Christ himself come to rescue his people. In fact, we're told in the book of Revelation that when Christ returns, the people will cry out to the mountains to fall on them, to cover them, to hide them from the face of Christ. That day of judgment will truly be a day of panic, a day of fear for those who have not bowed the knee to Christ beforehand. But having said that, uh, it is worth perhaps meditating on the panic of the person now who dies having not repented, who dies having not turned to Christ. Uh, We don't like to think about this, do we? Because it's uh, troubling and it uh, it pains us. Uh, But it perhaps is healthy sometimes to imagine what it must be like to come to the end of your life, having lived your own way, doing your own thing, refusing to bow the knee to Christ, and then to stand before him. As the Bible says, it's appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. What will it be like to stand before the maker of the universe, unforgiven, unreconciled? It doesn't bear thinking about the fear and the panic that must be in the heart of such a person. Many people glibly say, well, if I ever see God one day, I'll give him a piece of my mind. Have you ever heard people say that? You won't. They won't. Whenever people caught a glimpse of God in the Bible, they fell on their face as though dead. People who say such things do not know what they are talking about. And this fifth thing we're told about that day, whatever exactly that day is, it is a day of panic. It is a day of fear for those who do not bow the knee to Christ. But be encouraged. This is speaking of God's enemies. But you don't have to be God's enemy. I trust many, if not all of us here this evening, are not God's enemy. But we are reconciled to Christ. We are now his friend. So when he returns, or when we come to face him in death, we don't need to be afraid. But we can welcome him as a friend and not as our enemy. That's the fifth description of this day. It will be a day of panic. Uh, But let's move on, uh, swiftly coming towards the end. Uh, We see the sixth description of this day in verse 20. Look at verse 20. Uh, It says, In that day, holiness to the Lord shall be engraved on the bells of the horses. 
The pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls above, before the altar. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. I think, what a strange description. What's that speaking of? Uh, well, to understand this, you need to understand that the high priest of Israel uh, wore a band on his forehead. You could call it a crown, if you like. And on that crown was inscribed the words, holiness to the Lord. But it was only the high priest who wore this crown, inscribed with the words, holiness to the Lord. But here we're told, in that day, holiness to the Lord shall be engraved on the bells of the horses. Even the bells on the horses' bridles will be inscribed and engraved with the words, holiness to the Lord. To the Lord. In other words, everything and everyone will be holy. Righteousness will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Uh, in ancient Israel, it was just the high priest who could enter the Holy of Holies, and even then, only just once a year. Uh, and he only had that description on his crown. But in that day, even the bells on the horses' bridles will be engraved with holiness to the Lord. And you remember, of course, that when Jesus died on the cross, what happened to the veil in the temple? That veil which only the high priest could pass through once a year. We're told when Jesus died on the cross, it was torn from top to bottom. The way to the holiest place was made clear. Uh, anyone could enter in because of Christ's death on the cross. Before it was only the high priest, but now through Christ, we can enter in. Through Christ, everyone who believes in him can be holy. Now, if I asked you this evening, uh, how holy are you? I wonder what you would say. Uh, you might say, well, I'm not as holy as I should be. Uh, I'm perhaps making progress in this area, but in that area, no, not at all. But you realize that if you are a believer this evening, uh, if you are trusting in Christ, if you've had your sin forgiven by him, then you are holy. You are holy already in God's sight. You are, as the Bible puts it, seated in the heavenly places. It's done. It's over. It's finished. You are already pure in God's sight. You're forgiven. You're washed. And you're holy in God's sight. But of course, although that is true, our bodies haven't quite caught up with our souls yet. We are seated in the heavenly places and we are heading there. And we will enjoy that physically one day. But in the meantime, we are going through a process of sanctification. But one day, we will enjoy that process completed. Whatever sin you struggle with today, be encouraged. You won't be struggling with it forever. One day, you will stand before God and enjoy... In reality, what you already are in God's sight. 
one day you will stand before God completely pure, completely sinless, no more having to confess your sin, no more having to ask for forgiveness, no more having to wrestle and struggle with temptation because you will be completely and totally new. That's what it means when it says, in that day, holiness to the Lord shall be engraved on the bells of the horses. Verse 21, yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. And that leads to the seventh and last description of that day. Uh, Verse 21 again. Everyone whose sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them, in that day there shall no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. Now, to be clear, this is not a jingoistic or a a xenophobic statement in Scripture. Uh, To explain that, in the Bible, there were Canaanites who became believers. There were Canaanites who were part of God's people. Uh, Do you remember Uriah? Uh, Uriah was the husband of Bathsheba, and he was an upright and righteous man. But he was a Hittite. He was a Canaanite. Uh, Perhaps more famously, there was Rahab, uh, the prostitute from Jericho. She was a Canaanite, but she was welcomed into the people of God. So when it talks about there being no Canaanite in the land, it's not saying that Canaanites were excluded from becoming a part of God's people. What this verse is saying is that all of God's enemies will be destroyed. All of those who fight against God, all of those who want to rebel against him, all of those who say we don't want Christ to rule over us will be removed forever. God will put all enemies under his feet. And that's good news. Because it means that we have nothing to fear. Because there is no enemy too great that God cannot conquer. Uh, Even that greatest of enemies, death itself. Uh, Let me in closing just read 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 25 to 26. Uh, Paul writes these words. He says, Jesus must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. In that day, there will be no more enmity with God. God will destroy those who fight against him, but he will welcome with open arms all those who have been reconciled to him. There are many mysteries in this passage. Uh, I've barely touched the the surface, and you may have lots of questions still. Uh, But hopefully those seven descriptions uh, are an encouragement to us. Uh, Whatever we don't understand, we can be confident of this. Christ is in control. One day he will come. One day he will rescue his people. One day all enemies will be put under his feet, and we will be pure and spotless before him forever. And it's with these thoughts that we should comfort and encourage
each other. And with those thoughts in mind, I've chosen as our final hymn, number 288. And it's a hymn, I don't think we've sung it before, so this might be a mistake, but I've chosen it for the words, and hopefully you can see how relevant the words are. Number 288, see the ransomed million stand, palms of conquest in their hand. This before the throne their strain, hell is vanquished, death is slain. Blessing, honour, glory, might are the conqueror's native right. Thrones and powers before him fall, Lamb of God and Lord of all. So we'll stand to close by singing number 288.